0: Hey, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of Pattern Recognition, a show that seeks to connect the dots that lead to good business decision-making. I'm your host, John Hu, current investor at Norwest Venture Partners and former investment maker at Goldman Sachs. So over the past decade, we've seen the rise of the direct-to-consumer subscription-based business model, where historically speaking, you have a lot of large corporate incumbents like, say, a Procter & Gamble, that have traditionally relied on selling a customer a single product and hoping that that customer eventually comes back and buys that product again. But now in this new age, you have companies like Blue Apron and Dollar Shave Club working on an entirely new way to consistently delight the customer. So as opposed to being disintermediated by a retailer, these new age companies are building a direct dialogue with their customers via their subscription model And in the meantime, thanks to the recurring nature of their revenues, these companies are also better able to forecast and invest in their businesses, as opposed to having to start each new month with zero dollars in the bank. Now, of course, there are quite a few nuances to running a consumer subscription business. Metrics like customer retention, as well as quality metrics around customer satisfaction and on-time delivery rates are highly, highly critical in today's age of Amazon. So that is why I am very excited to announce Matt Salzberg as today's guest. Matt is the founder and chairman of Blue Apron, the pioneering direct-to-consumer meal kit service. Having co-founded Blue Apron in 2012, Matt and his team have gone from packaging their first 30 meals in a tiny commercial kitchen to delivering hundreds of thousands of high-quality meals to customers every single month. Additionally, having started his career in the investing world at both Blackstone and Bessemer Venture Partners, Matt brings an incredibly valuable perspective as both an operator and as an investor. So in today's episode, Matt and I will discuss how Blue Apron built out its supply chain to consistently deliver high satisfaction meals across the country, as well as dive into how Blue Apron tracks the health of its business with metrics like customer lifetime value and customer retention. We'll also discuss how having a direct and ongoing relationship with your customer enables a business to better personalize and satisfy that customer. So why don't we get started? Hey, Matt, how's it going? Hey, how are you? I'm doing great. I actually just had my Blue Apron box shipped to me yesterday. So very excited to break into that this weekend and cook some fantastic meals and also very excited to hear a little bit more about Blue Apron's founding story
1: yeah great I'm uh, excited to be here thanks for having me and uh look forward to talking about it
0: yeah so why don't we start out with a little bit of background on you and how you came to found blue apron sure so
1: you know my background before starting blue apron was on the investment side actually so I started my career at Blackstone doing heavy investing in the heat of the private equity boom you know I was there through Blackstone's IPO and then sort of realized that what I wanted to do with my career was more creative and I, I wanted to create a company eventually. And so I went to business school and spent a bunch of time in business school thinking about companies I might start, but, you know, wasn't really ready to do that in my, that phase of my career and went back into investing, but on the earlier stage side of things and did venture and growth investing at Bessemer for a while. And actually in my job interview at Bessemer, I told the folks there that I was going to quit and start a company as soon as I can, which might not have gone so well at a lot of job interviews, but they were really nice about it. <laughs> and yeah, it encouraged me to come anyway. And, and we super supportive about me, you know, eventually leaving and, and wanting to start something, which I did about, you know, just under two years into my time at Bessemer and, you know, started Blueprint. Blueprint really came from a personal need that me and my co-founders had. You know, we wanted to cook more, but found it expensive, inaccessible, hard to do, time consuming. You know, we weren't expert chefs, though. One of the co-founders of the company that I brought on had been a chef, which is why we brought him on because me and Elia, who was my first co-founder were not chefs ourselves. You know, we were users, right? People who had this problem in
0: our own daily lives, but very good at microwaving.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well actually mostly takeout at the time for me at least. And you know, I always loved cooking. Like I was watching cooking shows from an early age. When I lived in Hong Kong, one of my favorite things to do is to go out to what they call a the private kitchen where you'd have a home-cooked meal by someone that they'd introduce you to new things that you know, you might not have otherwise tried. And a lot of that kind of became core concepts for what we were trying to accomplish at Blue Apron. And you, know, you may or may not know, but the reason we called Blue Apron Blue Apron was because chefs around the world wear Blue Aprons when they're learning to cook. And so for us, that became a symbol of lifelong learning in cooking. And we try to incorporate this concept of learning into everything we did. From you know, the product, introducing people to new recipes, new techniques, new cuisines, all the way through to the company culture, where we saw ourselves as really innovating and building something from a capability and product perspective that hadn't been built before. And that learning orientation became really important to us.
0: Yeah. As I think about my own customer experience, there's definitely that aspect of convenience that shines through where I love cooking and I love how food brings people together, but in the day-to-day bustle of working 80 hours a week and spending time with family, it can be really difficult to find the time to go to the grocery store and then buy a bunch of bulk ingredients that you might use you know only a quarter of yep. before it goes to waste. Whereas with Blue Apron, it's delivered right to your door and in the exact quantity that you need. Yeah. And all that really resonates with me as a customer. So I'm curious... Then, as you started out building these meal kits and sourcing fresh and local ingredients across the country, how did you even go about building the requisite supply chain to execute on your vision?
1: Well, that was always the most difficult part of the business. You know, when we first came up with the idea, to me, it was obvious that we would have a market for what we did. You know, everybody cooks to some extent. You know, everyone eats to some extent. And if we were able to make at-home cooking easier more fun, more affordable, of course, we would have a big business. The thing we didn't know is how we were going to do it logistically and in a scale way. And, you know, we had some ideas at first, you know, we sketched out on a napkin, kind of the unit economics early on in the business's life in terms of whether they could work or not. And we had some really good sense that they were going to be very, very strong unit economics, which was good. And then we sort of just went ahead and tried to figure out how the logistics would work. You know, day one, what we did is we Rented a tiny little commercial kitchen in Long Island City, New York, it was maybe five hundred square feet big. And you know it was a back of the house, like extra kitchen that a local restaurant was using to prepare some of their stuff offsite. And the three of us, me and my two co-founders, literally just went to grocery stores nearby. You know, there was a Costco down the street that we would like buy canned tomatoes at and <laughs> roll them on a skateboard, back to this local this tiny little kitchen. You know we'd signed up a couple of restaurant distributors at the time to help supply us with you know produce and and other things and and uh, you know we go to the regular grocery store to buy food on our own for the first couple of weeks just to get it. and then we packed the boxes ourselves. you know we did the portioning ourselves, we did the packing ourselves, and we just delivered it locally to like our friends to try it out. and as that took off, you know obviously, we realized that to deliver the kind of food that we wanted to deliver in a high quality scale way, we had to go more direct in the supply chain, you know, go around the grocery stores, go around some of the restaurant distributors and start working with farms. And so as we got bigger and bigger, we started building out a farms team that would go and build relationships with local, small, medium sized, sustainable farms, you know, with great agricultural practices that would in some cases grow for us specialty ingredients that weren't even available at traditional grocery stores. You know, we use that as a way to really excite and delight the customers, but it was incredibly difficult obviously to manage those agricultural relationships and the like. And, and um, you know, over time, as we grew, you know, we also put a bigger and bigger emphasis on our fulfillment centers and we ended up investing quite a lot in processes. You know, we built quite a bit of software for our fulfillment centers We started investing in automation. And if you think about what happens in a Blue Apron fulfillment center, we receive bulk ingredients from farms, but then we do a lot of portioning and packaging of those ingredients and labeling of those ingredients ourselves in our fulfillment centers. And so we had to, over time, invest in bottling lines and packaging lines and bagging lines to really help us do what we do at greater and greater scale in order to continue to work with the suppliers of choice that we had in a high-quality way and and still deliver the means to our customers. So that became quite a big project, actually.
0: Yeah. And it's funny because you made that all sound still relatively easy, but just to give the listeners a sense of scale here, I mean, Blue Apron currently is serving hundreds of thousands of active monthly subscribers. So on a weekly basis, sending them fresh food from across the country, that's an enormously difficult logistical problem, not only from the staffing side and the fulfillment side, but then also the modeling and the operational side. I'm curious, are there any specific learning lessons that you can think of? Maybe there was a mishap early in the story of Blue Apron that really stood out to you and helped change your thinking or helped you rethink the process and re-optimize the business?
1: Well, I mean, there's so many things that we learned over time and so many things that we changed in the business. You know, I think, like I said, some of the automation that we put in place was really helpful, but was also a huge change management project in terms of moving from manual processes to more automated engineering in terms of the training of the employees, the support required to do that, you know, or quite big projects. You know, there were some simple things, just in terms of delivering, from the know-how required to deliver direct to consumer fresh ingredients nationwide, things like the right kind of packaging, the working with the right set of ingredients. Because with food, you know, different ingredients require different kind of temperature zones and have a different amount of robustness to shipping processes. You know, you imagine a FedEx delivery person hurling packages <laughs> onto the back of their truck, right? And that works okay if you're getting bucks. But when you're dealing with tomatoes, you know, those can get squished or bruised or damaged. And we don't just work with FedEx. We work with a variety of shipping partners with a variety of shipping techniques to improve on that. But at the end of the day, a lot of it comes down to packaging engineering and packaging design to make sure that food arrives at the right critical temperatures and in the right conditions. And so, you know, there's a lot of know-how we developed there. And then on the, also on the shipping side, cause, cause you mentioned it, just the logistics of dealing with weather events, you know, are quite complex. And originally when we started, we didn't really, we just powered right through weather events and dealt with them. And, and if something didn't get to a customer on time, we'd refund their money or, or whatever. But over time, you know, we started anticipating weather events. And I think in the perishable shipping business, it's really important that you're paying attention to the weather. Because if you see a weather event happening in a particular part of the country, you know, you can reroute shipments or you can hold back shipments or you can ship them earlier in ways to avoid those logistics issues. And so, you know, over time, we developed kind of a little bit of a command center that would deal with some of these things.
0: And Matt, while you were figuring out all of these logistical problems in the midst of some phenomenal success, we also saw a number of pop-up competitors head into the space. So how did you think about differentiation versus all those competitors and that messaging to your end consumer?
1: Yeah, you know, through my time as CEO, we were always the largest and most successful business of our kind in the U.S., You know, we tried to use that scale to our advantage as one of the differentiators that we had. You know, it's why we were able to attract capital. It's why we were able to build out some of these more complicated farm and supply chain relationships. It allowed us to invest in our infrastructure to drive our costs down so that we can offer more value to customers than our competitors could. You know, there was a period in maybe 2015, 2016, I'm not exactly sure when, when, you know, we had a couple of competitors pop up that were targeting different niches of the market that we were underserving, you know, and I think we made a conscious decision early on in the company's life to be very focused and to go after, you know, the large market opportunity, not niche diet plans and niche customer segments. But I think that did create the opportunity for some competitors to pop up targeting different segments that we were essentially rejecting by not having the right products for And so there were some companies that were built off of those kind of businesses, you know, plant-based diets or, you know, really inexpensive meals, really fast meals or pure organic, whatever it was. And for a while, because we were growing so fast and just focusing on the broad market, didn't go after those, knowing always that we would come back and serve folks like that over time. And so we used our scale to get us to a position financially and from a capability perspective to allow us to eventually go on the offense there. And over the last couple of years, we've really expanded our offerings pretty dramatically into super fast meals with more pre-prepared ingredients, into more choices for customers on the really healthy side, on the more family-oriented side, and sort of up and down the stack for different meal preferences. And so that's been a big area of focus for us over the last couple of years. And it's been going well. And one of the things that we've seen in our business over time is as we add more choice and add more options for customers, you know, that's always a really positive thing from a unit economics and a customer happiness perspective.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And I think the key theme there is this ability to personalize with scale. And one of those ways is through data, right? So the longer you're working with your customer, the longer you have a relationship, the longer they're a subscriber, the more that you understand about what's best for them. So I'm curious, what were some other ways in which you leverage data to further personalize the customer experience? And what were some specific product rollouts or some specific initiatives that you championed?
1: Being a direct-to-consumer business, we have some of the most rich data on food habits and ordering patterns of anyone in the country. You know, we collect ratings on all of the recipes that we send to customers. We collect, obviously, data in terms of what people are ordering. And beyond the ratings, we get tons of feedback on social media in our customer service segments. And on the customer service side, one of the interesting things we implemented over time was a much more robust feedback collection tool that, in addition to just rating the recipe, we sort of, you know, if you rated it highly, we sort of collected information on what you loved. If you rated it poorly, we we collected information on what went wrong. And, you know, we were able to use that information from a customer service perspective to address issues proactively that didn't go quite right. Or to double down on things that are going excellently in the product design side of things. And our culinary team always reviews all the feedback we get and and all the data in terms of closing the loop on designing next week's menu or the upcoming menus. And because we can do that, it's unique to be able to leverage that data so rapidly since we change our menus every single week, right? So every week, we're updating the recipes that are on the menus. And especially in the early days – That feedback loop was super helpful for designing what the right recipes were that people liked that maximized the sell-through of those recipes, the happiness of our customers with those recipes, the repeat orders from those recipes. And so I would say the the thing we use it the most on is definitely the recipe and product design process. You know, obviously we use it for personalized marketing, personalized service, and the like as well.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And it's a true moat and competitive advantage for the business where maybe one day, tomorrow someone else decides to start a complete copycat of Blue Apron's meal plan, but just doesn't understand the customer in the same way and doesn't have those insights, which yeah. which is a beauty to the subscription business model of staying close to your customers. Speaking about subscription business models, I'm curious, what are some of the key performance indicators or metrics that you track in regards to retention or cohorts that really shine out for Blue Apron?
1: We've all sorts of things. At the highest level, of course, we look at lifetime value of the customer, six month, 12 month, 24 month revenue values of customers, churn, what percentage of our subscribers are ordering on a given week, on a given basis, and compare that to what it costs to acquire a new subscriber. You know, obviously that's one of the key things we've looked at over time. We look at quality metrics very religiously also, because quality metrics are very correlated with, you know, with lifetime values and customer happiness and the like. So things like the percentage of boxes that we deliver that are perfect every time, on-time deliveries, you know, things like that. We look at those things on a very regular basis and, you know, and probably, you know, originally our dashboard at the company early on was 10 pages long of metrics that we looked at and every team would have different metrics that they'd be tracking to on a different week. But at the end of the day, really, it pulled up to those couple of key ones, I think.
0: Got it. And have there been any examples where you changed a specific aspect about the product or the user experience that drove a step function improvement in the business?
1: I wouldn't say there was one specific thing on a website, for instance, but there were definitely features that we rolled out that were really impactful to us. I think the early on, a big one was the launch of our family plan, where we started addressing serving sizes for larger households that we had previously just been turning away. And and the people who should have been on those plans were just wedging themselves into our two-person plans and loved our service enough that they were sacrificing and doing that, but it wasn't really designed for them. So I think that was a big one. I think making our account and subscription more flexible for customers to manage and deal with has always been a positive thing for us. And we've always been focused on rolling out new features to make account management even easier and make the business even less subscription like. You know, obviously subscriptions are excellent things when they fit your lifestyle really well. But for some people, if the subscription doesn't fit their lifestyle and life habits well, it becomes a possibility of churn or friction. And so we always enhance the ways that our subscription could be flexible. And over time, you know, we really would like to think about subscription even more as a feature than just the business model of Blue Apron. And you know, we've launched a number of things even recently you know, to that effect in terms of just core features that make our subscription more flexible, but offerings and other channels, like we have an offering on jet.com now, where we have an on demand blue apron a la carte kit. We've had in the past retail offerings in uh, Costco and elsewhere, we have a online marketplace where you can buy stuff from us, just like any old e commerce experience. And so adding those kind of features and robustness have actually always been really positive things for us.
0: And I think it's worth pointing out that those are all efforts to drive a higher average revenue per customer, which is a consistent theme across most successful consumer companies. Are there any other patterns beyond hustle and beyond brand experience that you find across all successful consumer companies?
1: Well, I think even more specifically than just all consumer-facing companies, I think on the direct-to-consumer sort of e-commerce side, one of the things that I always look for, like when I angel invest or or think about things for new companies is what their referral dynamics are like. And I think in a world where it's increasingly more competitive to spend paid money online to just acquire customers through brute force, you know, it's really important to see that your current customer base is activated and in love with your brand in such a way that they're telling other customers about you. I think one of the really important things that we implemented early on in Blue Apron's life was a referral program. And sort of, I came up with this referral program, day one of the business, where we leveraged our current customers to give free deliveries to their friends to try our product. And it was unique at the time because we didn't give any incentive to our current customer base to do that, but we gave the person getting the referral a free delivery to try us out, no strings attached. And at the time, since e-commerce penetration of online, of grocery was so low, very few people had bought groceries online. We were really the pioneer in that space And so people were still thinking, hey, is it going to be fresh? Is it going to be good? You know, I've never really ordered groceries online before. So it gave a risk-free way for someone to touch and feel our product before converting. Anyway, that program was really effective for us. and, And even to this day, our referral program is a gigantic channel for us. And so I think it's important for consumer brands as an indicator of their success to be activating their own customers. It's a proprietary way for you to acquire new customers, and it's indicative of the health of your business. Because if your customers are not so excited about you that they're referring others, it probably means you don't have such a great business. So that's always been something I've looked at.
0: Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there. When I think about referral-based sales, that's such a leading indicator of a company's net promoter score and the brand's resonance with the consumer. And is really telling around the ability for a company to grow organically through these referrals and through uh, word of mouth, as opposed to just spending paid marketing dollars, which at some point hits a plateau. So you also mentioned angel investing there. I'm curious, what do you think is the future of food, especially within the context of direct-to-consumer? Well,
1: you know, that's also a broad topic. I do think more and more dollars are going to move online over time, just like every other big retail category, food is lagging a little bit in terms of e-commerce penetration, but over time it should get greater and greater as, you know, companies like Blue Apron and other brands and big platforms like Amazon and Walmart and Kroger and others continue to roll out, you know, more and more ways for consumers to get access to food delivered to them directly to their home. And and modern consumers want to interact with folks through the web, you know, I don't think that retail is going away because I do think there's a segment of people that also really likes the retail experience, but retailers are going to have to get more and more hyper-focused on consumer needs, on differentiating their retail experiences and making them not be terrible, which many retail experiences are today, especially in food. And so, but fortunately, food is such an emotional, important category to customers that there are a lot of ways to excite and delight customers and hook them into your experiences. So I don't think retail go away. I do think more and more sales will go online over time, though. And, you know, I think on the product side, as it is pretty obvious, but all of the different food categories are getting reinvented with healthier, better for you, cleaner labels, more sustainable supply chains, and the like. And that's because consumers, they are demanding those kind of things in ways that they hadn't been in the past, as well as in the past they sort of were a little flippant about trusting certain brands, but now, you know, I think consumers don't trust the big industrialized food brands of past generations and they're looking for new brands. You know, people are a little less brand loyal today, and they're a little more willing to try out a new company that they feel that they can identify with. And so there's this cycle of disruption going on with more traditional food brands being disrupted by, new up-and-coming brands that target either a specific segment or a sort of reinvented label and health experience. So there's a lot of that going on. and I think it's a really exciting time.
0: Yeah. Well, Matt, I think that's our time today. I really appreciate you having a conversation with me and look forward to sharing this with the audience.
1: Great. Nice talking to you.
0: Once again, a huge thank you to Matt for joining us today. I had a ton of fun and am going to go make myself a Blue Apron-sponsored seared steak to celebrate. As always, though, if you enjoyed the show, I'd love if you gave me a quick rating and review, as well as sent any feedback or guest recommendations my way. You can reach me on Twitter at John Heazy, that's J-O-H-N-H-E-E-Z-Y, or on Instagram at John G. Who, that's J-O-H-N-G-H-U. So thank you all for tuning in, and I'll talk to you next week. Bye.